So Money episode 1052, Black Wealth Matters, revisiting our conversation with Minda Hartz, author of The Memo. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. Friday, June 5th. How's everybody doing? We are skipping the Ask Farnoosh episodes for the next few weeks because I want to dedicate consecutive episodes to my new series called Black Wealth Matters. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know this is uh, something that we kicked off on Wednesday with Mylie Teal, our friend and founder of Curlbox. I just thought that with everything going on, my contribution, the easiest thing I can do and perhaps an impactful thing that I can do is to dedicate the next 10, 12 episodes to hearing from Black Voices, people who have visited the podcast and some new friends to the show. We've got Queen Latifah next week, Tiffany, the budget, Nista Aliche, Arlen Hamilton, who's a venture capitalist, Dominique Stapleton, a sports agent, Tiffany Dufu, a New York Times bestselling author and entrepreneur, all coming to the show over the next few weeks. And many of these people are coming on thanks to your guest suggestions. I announced on Instagram earlier this week saying, hey, I'd like to dedicate more episodes to hearing from people within the Black community, people who have done exemplary things with their financial lives, their careers, who are teaching others. We can learn from them how they broke barriers, how they fought racism and oppression. And you spoke and you continue to share, and I would love to continue hearing from you. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com with your guest recommendations. If you yourself would like to nominate yourself, that has happened. I have a couple guests coming on in the next few weeks who said, hey, I've got a thing or two to share and would be delighted to share the stage with you. And I said, absolutely. So look, this is not just going to be for the next 10 episodes, right? This is going to be an ongoing effort. I'm proud of the guests that have joined this show over the last five years, people of color who've come on to share their amazing insights, advice, stories. But it's time to really make more of an effort, to make a more conscious effort, a deliberate effort to have as many voices represented on this show. So who's our guest today? Well, earlier this year in January, I I think I kicked off the new year, 2020, with Minda Hartz, who is the author of the incredible book, Flying Off the Shelves right now, called The Memo. Minda is the founder of The Memo LLC. It's a career development company for women of color. And then her book, The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table, is a best-selling book. She is an assistant professor of public service of NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. She's also a sought-after speaker on the topic of workplace diversity and inclusion. And in her book, Minda provides a roadmap for women to not only navigate, but change the system that they are working within. She talks about discrimination, the discrimination that so many of her peers, she herself included, feel and felt as they were climbing the ranks, the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, all of the realities that we need to face and acknowledge so that as a collective, we can support and be agents for change in the workplace and beyond. I just thought this episode warranted a replay. And so here we go. Without further ado is the lovely Minda Hartz. Minda Hartz, welcome to So Money. So happy to be here. Thank you. 
Thank you for writing your book. It's so important that we feel included in the conversation as women when it, when we're talking about work. And while there's so many books out there that are written for women, you really wanted to address women of color um, because you felt like this wasn't really a conversation that we were having for real, like with, with real honesty and real strategy. So tell us about what inspired you to write your book. And, and, and it's been now about six months. So what has been the outcome since you released it? Yeah, it's really been crazy. I literally just this past weekend came off a 28 city book tour. And wow. Yeah, I wasn't sure what the what the outcome would be. You know, the book came out at the end of August and uh, it's the first book about women of color and our experiences in the workplace by a major publisher. And so um, putting I spent 15 years in corporate America and I was always one of the only ones, one of the only black women or women of color. And so you tend to feel isolated when you're the only one. Yes, as women, we do experience, you know, levels of oppression at times, but it really is different when you're a woman of color. Um, for example, I talk about changing my name um, just so that I would get the interviews. You know, sometimes other women don't experience that. Um, my hair, uh, you know, I talk to other women who have been told, why don't you wear your pretty hair today? You know, all of those certain microaggressions and biases that we don't address or that hasn't been addressed. And I think in order to create an equitable workplace, we have to talk about the experiences of all women. Indeed. And, you know, just to go back to lean in for a second, one of the criticisms I think that was the fallout of the book, although there were many things that I liked about lean in, one of the sort of annoyances was that here we go again, telling women how they need to behave and act to sort of fit into a model that is otherwise rigid and patriarchal. And so when you were writing the memo, what considerations did you make as far as, you know, there's obviously advice that you can give your readers, but there's also systemic problems that individuals can't really solve for. So how did you reconcile that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, yes, lean in, it, it definitely um, really put some fire under me to tell my career story in those of women of color, because I don't think that the workplace is created equal. And, and granted, there was some really great advice that lean in had. I think sometimes it's different when you don't have a certain pedigree, you know, as a woman in the workplace to, to build your network. And if you're not in the room already, then it's really hard to lean in. And so I think for at least in my social circles uh, with other women of color, professional women of color that I was with, we talk about Lena and just in many other career books that we just didn't see ourselves in. And so I wanted to write a book in which, you know, black and brown women, women of color saw themselves a little differently and that others who weren't women of color could read about some of the things that we deal with. And so for the first part of the book, I kind of take you on a journey in terms of some of the, I guess, compromises, sacrifices that I made in my career. And what I didn't realize at the time was that I was making these concessions for some people in my environment that wouldn't even learn how to pronounce my full government name, right? And so sometimes when you're making all these concessions, you realize, wow, this is really a detriment to my overall career health. And so I wanted to write a book in which, you know, going into this next decade that women of color would be able to be a little freer and hopefully our allies inside the workplace, those managing diverse talent would understand some of the unique challenges that some of their talent may be facing that they hadn't even considered. And so that's part of why we need to tell 
various narratives of career stories, because again, you know, all women don't experience the workplace the same. You know, you've been on this book tour. So when I've been emailing you, I've been getting a bit of a, I've been getting like a, an auto reply um, in some cases, and it describes how to get in touch with you if it's urgent. And one of the things is, is if you're interested in having me speak or interview me, um, here's who you can call or connect with. P.S. I have a speaking fee that is explicitly in the email, which I think is so bold and spot on. But I think some people would be afraid to put that out there because they would be worried that it would immediately like uh, exclude them from opportunities. Um, You made a conscious decision to put that in that email. And I wonder, going back through your history of work, what inspired you to do that? And was this something that has this been successful for you? You know, <laughs> I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I always... Yeah, I noticed that. I was like, good for her. <laughs> well, it's funny because, um, you know, women will email me and they'll say, the one thing that they comment on is, I can't believe you would be, you'd be so bold to put that you have a speaking fee inside your email. And for me, I have to tell you, Farnoosh, that for me, finding my voice inside the workplace was like a metamorphosis, right? If you would have asked Deminda 10 years ago, would she have drafted an auto response in which I was so clear about my expectations in, you know, former relationship, I would have said, oh no, right? (laughs) But what I realized was if I am not my best advocate, if I don't put some respect on my own check and my own talent, Mm -hmm. then I leave it in the hands of someone else. And I think as women, um, and as a speaker, and you probably know this, there's so many people who reach out and say, can you speak for free? And it's like, well, this is how I make my living. You know, (laughs) you wouldn't go to, you know, McDonald's and ask them to make you hamburgers for free. And so I figured that one of the things I would do, and I just started doing that at the second half of, of 2019, was be very clear. And so if you want me to come. I want to come too, but let's establish that there is a fee and then we can work from there. And so it's really um, been great because people still who really want to talk about this and are serious about equity for all women, they continue to reach out and we talk about and negotiate what that fee is. And then those who don't, obviously they self-select, but I think those are the environments I want to be and I get to create that environment for myself. That is so smart. And I love that you've had a positive experience with that because I think the, the, the guess is that, oh, this is going to necessarily diminish my opportunities. And, and perhaps, yeah, there'll be some people that'll see that and go, well, we don't have a budget, but at least you're right. It kind of get, takes that elephant out of the room right away. Cause I think we always dance around the money the money bit. Oh, definitely. For too long. <laughs> definitely. And I'm sure yeah. that people are like, who does this woman think she is? Is she like, you know, oh, yeah. or something, which, which is fine. But I realized that it's, we all start somewhere, right? And, um, and you want to create relationships with people who respect what you bring to the table. And it's really been helpful. And it's been challenging me. So even in my own, like, I had to lean into my courage and say, okay, if I'm a, if this is what I offer, then, you know, let's have that conversation there. And then again, people will select, I I can only um, control the part of the equation that I can. And that is letting people know that I do have that fee. It's so hard to, to gain that power, to feel like you're in control though. And one of the things, one of the themes in your book is about, you know, reclaiming yourself for it, the power and walking away. I was just interviewing a celebrity, uh, Busy Phillips about how she negotiates for herself in Hollywood. And she prefaced and said, look, I'm going to give you advice, but 
two things. I have a very specific industry that doesn't necessarily track with others. You know, I don't live in, I don't work in corporate. And two, I'm a privileged white woman. So I just want to say that. And I really appreciated that because it it is important to say these things, right? Because it's not going to necessarily track for all people. Mm -hmm. She said to me, I'm a privileged white woman. And so that's important to keep in mind when I tell you things like there have been opportunities that I've been, uh, presented with that were below my pay rate and I walked away. Would I have been able to walk away if I wasn't as well known, if I was not um, a privileged white woman? I don't know. And so I want to ask you that question. You know, there there is a danger sometimes in in walking away because your ability to ultimately claim power and a fee and seniority in your in your role and your work, it's so you have to build that momentum. And maybe you do start with at zero. And then you kind of leverage that to ultimately get where you want to go. So how do you, how do you know when it's okay to walk away? Yeah, that I'm glad that you put that in to context. And I think it's important to have that discussion. When I started my company, the memo uh, in 2015, I was taking speaking gigs for free, right? Because I wanted to um, hone in on my skills and, um, and my right. delivery and those sorts of things. So it took some time for me to get to that place uh, where I felt comfortable enough to be able to say, you know, this is my fee. And there are still times where I do things because they resonate with my mission, right? And so I work with with folks, but it took a couple of years before I was able to say, you know, this is what my fees are. And I think that um, regardless of what industry you're in, Obviously, once you have a certain level of expertise, then you should get paid for your time and your talent. And I think only you can decide what that is. But it took over probably 100 unpaid or very minimally paid speaking engagements. It took, you know, TEDx talks. It took a lot before I was able to say, hey, I'm pretty good at this. And and obviously, there's a a want for what I have to talk about. And so even in my mind, I, I I still like waver because I really am an introvert. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my God, am I really doing this? But I have to tell you, Farnoosh, one woman said to me, Minda, if you you wrote this book and you're, you know, people want you at the moment you're in demand to talk about the memo, if you're not expecting a certain fee, what do you think that means for the ones behind you and coming up mm-hmm. behind you? And so when she said that, I realized that I had a responsibility to make sure that I stay here because I don't want them to take anything less than what they're worth. Yes. Yes. It's not just about you sometimes. It's bigger than me. And <laughs> it's much bigger than you, which I think is so empowering. It's a reminder of just how powerful you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and just to put out there, black women earn 61 cents for every dollar earned by their white male coworkers. You know, they say it's going to take who knows when for the average woman <laughs> mm-hmm. to reach pay parity. What is, what is the outlook you think for women of color? Yeah. You know, and those stats don't lie. I mean, those are the, those are the facts at the moment. And I think for us, and I talk about this, I have a whole chapter in the book about um, my negotiations and, and things I've been in. And part of that is really asking because being on the road and meeting so many women, the especially women of color, they've told me that they're just, many of them aren't even asking, right? They're waiting for their boss or their manager to come and like tap them on the shoulder and say, it's your time for a raise. And, and I realized in my experience, it never happened when I waited, right? It was very rare. And so, um, making sure that I have all of my, 
you know, statistics, I have my notes, I, you know, I have my case for support, I really have to put it out there and we have to be our biggest advocates. And so I did that when I was in a traditional workforce. And now as an entrepreneur, I realize that I have to do that even more because, you know, the paychecks look a little bit different when you're out on your own. So I have to advocate mm-hmm. for myself. So we can control the ask, right? Yes, yes. So much of this is psychological. And I read that you write, I think about this in your book, that there were earlier days when you had to really kind of give yourself a pep talk. Like you had to change the story in your head. And each morning before leaving your car, you'd give yourself a pep talk where you would be able to then go into the workplace and fight against whatever the microaggression of the day was going to be, or even some cases, direct racism. Um, What was that pep talk like? How'd it go? Uh, well, it was mixed with some tears and like some Beyonce lyrics, <laughs> being honest. <laughs> perfect cocktail. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but I realized that um, I, I still had to remind myself of my worth, even if it was wavering at times in the environment I was working in. But reminding myself that I worked really hard to get here. I belong you know, in any room that I walk into now, it may not be the one that I need to stay in. Right. But I had to remind myself that we've worked too hard to lean out now. And I think it's really important to tell ourselves a new story every day because the, you know, the life we live, the world we live in, it can be sometimes a lot to take in. And sometimes we have to rewrite that new story every morning to remind us about the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. How do you fight racism at work? Is there a is there a a path to success there? Because it seems like you know you talk about what is it the uh, the double bind mm-hmm. you know like if you're experiencing gender discrimination at work that's that's one challenge and then you're experiencing perhaps layered onto that um, racial discrimination. Do you feel like there's a there's a there's safety in talking about that at work and? going to the powers that be and talking about, hey, like, aren't my managers racist? Have you heard of stories about that being successful? Uh, I've probably heard more stories of where it hasn't been successful, right? Right. Part of that is when you are one of the only ones and the majority is not experiencing what you are experiencing, then they try to tell you sometimes that what you're experiencing isn't what it is, right? And so it's diminishing how you feel about the situation. And so I think for many of us, we just don't even say anything because we know we're going to met with, well, no, so-and-so didn't mean any harm when you know that that harm eventually means something to you. And so I would, I think what is going to change the way we dismantle racism in the workplace is when our colleagues, our allies realize that, oh, I can't just stay silent on this. Maybe I should step in or talk to somebody or acknowledge it because you can't fight it alone, right? Success is not a solo sport. And so those times when I was in the workplace and something racist was said in the office and I was the only one there and my colleagues would just kind of look the other way, it's like I was hoping that they would step up for me, but some of them, many of them never did because they didn't want to you know, get, in, get involved. And I think it's going to take all hands on deck and we can no longer just turn a cheek to racism be, unless that's the environment we we want to create, right? But if we say we want equity for all, then it's going to take some people leaning into their courage as well. That's a great transition to my next question, which was that you have in your book advice for white readers who want to create inclusive work environments. So what can we do? What can I do to make sure that there is the change that I want to see in the world happening at work? 
Well, I appreciate you just having this conversation on your podcast, because I think sometimes the privilege that many of us have, regardless of, you know, what intersection we sit at, is that sometimes we're not thinking about how others experience things. And so the book like The Memo, if you're not a woman of color, uh, it's important that you read about what it's like, because I'm sure you sit next to one, right? <laughs> or you manage uh, diverse talent, so you'll be a better uh, manager knowing what um, some of those issues are. But I think the other part is understanding our language. And in that uh, chapter, I really talk about some of the things that historically are said to people of color that I know are well-intentioned, but they make us feel bad, right? So I'm colorblind. Like I literally was in a lift ride for about 40 minutes and the, the lift driver just kept saying, I'm colorblind, I'm colorblind. And I'm like, okay, guys. <laughs> I mean, but I'm like, I want, I want you to see I want you to see me. And I think that's the issue. We've been so afraid of race and we don't have to be. That's, you know, I am a black woman. That is who I am. I want you to see that. And so I would love to redefine um, allyship into, you know, success partners where at the end of the day, it's really bridging the empathy gap. And do we start with our kids at home? Funny, like my son, who is five and a half, he's starting to pick up on people's different skin color and skin tones. I don't think, I mean, we, we don't really talk about, we don't go into depth about race yet because we, we it's like this delicate balance, right? Like how much attention do we give it to a point where he's thinking like, oh, this is a thing, like, you know, and that maybe that there, that the differences, he can start to internalize that as like, these differences constitute conversations, which may mean to him, his little brain, that like it's more serious than it should be, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I know that it's it, it can be it can be hard. I think we can all do small steps, right? Small acts of courage and, and meaning like if you currently don't have anyone, not you per se, but if, if those um, don't have any people of color or underserved communities in their network, you know, finding ways to expose um, our children to others, right? And so that it's not like right. this weird thing that you just, you know, see somebody. It's not a teachable <laughs> moment, right? Like, you could just be, you just see multiculturalism and diversity as he, and that's part of why we live where we do. Um, we And I grew up with that. I grew up going to school with a lot of different kids from different races and different religions and different household dynamics, single moms, two dads. And so I... I think that for me was such a strong foundation because I just kind of accepted at a very early age that the world is vast mm -hmm. and that I am just one person on this planet that I'm, that the world doesn't revolve around me, that no one is more dominant than the other person. And I think that that's crucial that yes, conversation is important, but you really start to believe what you believe when you see it. Exactly. I mean, literally, um, when I was, uh, I guess you could say in my formative years up until I was about 12 years old, I lived in Southern California and it was a very diverse atmosphere. And I never thought much about, oh, I was never the only one of anything. But then once I was a teenager, my parents moved to a small rural town in Illinois and I was the only one. And I, it was the first time that I felt out of place, right? It was the first time that some of my, you know, Caucasian friends had seen a black person. And I felt all of the things that were coming out of them from not being exposed to this. And I think, you know, it, it does us harm when we don't expose even just each of us, even as adults, if we've been normalized in one situation, that it's really important as we go into the next decade, how are we going to change the way even we show up? in the world for others. Let's shift gears a little bit, Minda, to talking more 
about money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's important. Um, yeah, I mean, you've already shared a bit about your upbringing. How was money introduced to you as a child in terms of, like when you think about your childhood and money, what's a story that comes to mind that really captures it? In my home, I, I actually have to say, I grew up in a very low income family, so money was very scarce. But one thing that I saw was my grandmother, like she's really, really good about her money. And she would always, you know, tell me, you know, get a savings account, you know, you deposit your money in the bank. And so I really watched my grandmother as I got older. And I saw how she was, um, how she made her money stretch, right? And she lived below her means. And so that was something that's really been etched in my brain as I grew up to, and, you know, entered corporate America to really make my money stretch so that I have a savings account. And so I'm really happy that my grandmother instilled some of those um, money principles to, to really respect your money in a way and have a good relationship with it. And why do you think she was so good with money? Yeah, my grandmother, she was a single mother of five girls. And so uh, she had, she didn't have a high school diploma. And so she really went out and realized that every dollar counted. And so um, I'm so happy for her because she was able to buy her first home and help some of her daughters buy their first homes. And and this is a woman who probably made an equivalent to maybe $10 an hour. And she was able to make that money stretch. And so seeing her do that, I realized that you don't have to be rich to be, to, to have a good way of living. Right. And so, um, for me, it was just really good to see her as a good money role model. It's so important. And, and when you link, think about the, the new year or uh, the beginning of a, a new decade, a new year, 2020, so exciting. What do you, um, hope for your finances this year? Is there a financial goal you have in mind? I, we asked this question in partnership with our sponsor, Chase. We're really curious to learn about guests, financial resolutions. Yeah. So continuing to add to my, to my savings account. But the other thing that I hope to do in 2020 is help invest in women owned businesses, because I think it's really a catalyst for closing um, the wealth gap. And so I want to be able to do more uh, angel investing. And so I'm making sure that I'm living below my means so I can help others and invest in their business as well. And book number two, I mean, I got to ask a new author who's done very well with her first. I'm sure there's talk about the next book. Well, yeah, there is. There is a talk of it. And I will share with you that we're actually talking about a younger version of the memo, because to your point earlier, some of these things that we learn, we learn as young adults, right? Young children. And so what would it look like if we had some of these conversations early on. And so we're, we're playing around with that right now. And so if you had to give advice to a younger Minda or a younger reader of the memo who is looking ahead and optimistic about getting her job and working her way through her career, what is some strategic advice you would give her that would necessarily shield her from any of the still lingering racism or inequalities at the work in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would tell the younger Minda and I tell any woman really is make sure that you interview your future employer as well. I think when I entered the workplace and every job I had, I was pretty much just happy to get the role, right? This is 
great money. It's a title change. And I was just grateful to be at the table and in the room. But I didn't ask always the right questions of them. You know, maybe had I asked certain questions, I would have found out what type of environment I would have been exposed to. Um, So I think remembering to interview your employer, too, because it's very we give the power away sometimes. And I could have asked those questions about culture and environment and predecessors. And I think I would have gotten down to a lot of that. I would have avoided some of those bad environments, those toxic environments. So remember that you have the power as well. And just to add on to that, maybe not so much for someone who's getting her first job because you don't really have any money yet, but I think your, your ability to walk away from a situation that reads bad to you is having money, right? When you feel financially empowered, that's agency to become more choosy, right? Because sometimes we are just happy to be there because it's paying the bills, frankly. I wish for a day where everybody, especially women, have the financial security where they can say no more for whatever reason. It it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't align. They want to wait for something better. That is a change that I'd love to see. And it's... uh, it's so great that you're you're sharing this message with all generations now. It's so important. And I hope 2020 will be a year of progress. I think it will be. I think so and as long as you're out there, I think we'll be, uh, we'll be definitely moving the needle. Thank you so much, Minda Hartz. Thank you. Thank you to Minda for joining me. By the way, many of you have been wondering how you can help, how you can contribute to this movement, to this important cause of racial equality. And I'll tell you what I've been doing with my money. I've been contributing to a few places. One is the NAACP, where for many generations, they've been supporting racial injustice. The Action Bail Fund, where 100% of donations go directly to support bail fees and medical costs associated with actions. You can find your community bail fund at communityjusticeexchange.org. And lastly, I just want to say I really appreciate you all. I really appreciate the love and the support and the commitment to this podcast. You know, it's funny. um, This has been a pretty banner year for the podcast. This year, we got nominated for a Webby Award. The New York Times recently highlighted so many in its roundup of podcasts that will help you navigate the recession. But the best part of this podcast, the best recognition I get as a host of this podcast is from my listeners, your dedication, your hitting that subscribe button, leaving reviews, reaching out and telling me what you like and how the show has made an impact on your life. That is what for me counts the most. So I really appreciate you. On that note, wishing you all a safe and uplifting weekend. Thank you for listening. And I hope your weekend is so money. 